A loss in the House for Democrats. Kevin McCarthy says no way to the select committee looking into January 6th. And we talk about Cuba and an opiate decision in New York that has people up in arms. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. Senate Democrats fell short in their efforts to begin debate today on a bill that would act as the vehicle for President Biden's infrastructure package. 60 votes were needed to take up the measure, but just 49 senators approved moving forward. Have all senators voted? Does any senator wish to change his or her vote? On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51, three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn, not having voted in the affirmative. The motion, <clears throat> the motion is not agreed to. President. Majority Leader. I enter a motion to reconsider the failed closure vote. The motion is entered. Madam President. I just the Majority want to explain Leader. what happened on the floor very briefly. At the end of the vote. Sorry. Madam President, I just want to explain what happened on the floor very briefly. At the end of the vote, I changed my response to a no so that I may move to reconsider this vote at a future time. I yield the floor. The vote on the roughly $1 trillion package came nearly a month after Biden appeared outside the White House with a bipartisan group of senators to announce an agreement. The measures targeted at traditional infrastructure investments such as roads, bridges, water systems and an expansion of broadband Internet. Republicans have repeatedly said they can't support voting to advance a bill that isn't yet fully written. And in more news from Capitol Hill, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi rejected two Republicans tapped by House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy to sit on a committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection, a decision the Republican denounced as an egregious abuse of power. McCarthy said the GOP won't participate in the investigation if Democrats won't accept the members he appointed. This represents something that has not happened in the House before for a select committee by the historian. It's an egregious abuse of power. Pelosi has broken this institution. Denying the voice of members who have served in the military. Jim Banks, a Navy veteran who served in Afghanistan. Serves on PASC. Chair of the largest caucus of the Republican conference. And law enforcement, as well as a leader of a standing committee. Jim Jordan isn't ranking of just his first committee. He's done it before. Jim Jordan has served on select committee and serves on one now. Made it undeniable this panel has lost all legitimacy and credibility. And it shows exactly what I warned back at the beginning of January, that Pelosi would play politics with this. Pelosi cited the integrity of the probe in refusing to accept the appointments of Indiana Representative Jim Banks, picked by McCarthy to be the top Republican on the panel, or Ohio Representative Jim Jordan. The two men are outspoken allies of former President Donald Trump, whose supporters laid siege to the Capitol that day and interrupted the certification of President Biden's win. Both of them voted to overturn the election results in the hours after the siege. Mississippi Representative Benny Thompson, a Democrat and chair of the panel, said the committee would carry out its duties anyway. He said, it's been more than six months since the attack. We owe it to our democracy to stay the course and not be distracted by sideshows.
And earlier today, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said he had tremendous faith and confidence in Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley after former President Trump blasted the four-star general over a book excerpt. Trump targeted the general following recent reports that Milley looked to prevent Trump from staging a coup after losing the 2020 election. Trump said he had lost total confidence in Milley during his presidency, claiming Milley choked like a dog under scrutiny. Milley spoke and was followed by Austin. Thanks for the question. Look, I know there's a lot of interest out there and all of these books that are out there and quoting me and lots of others, etc. I'm not going to comment on what's in any of those books. Let me just say this, though. Um, I always personally provided the best military professional advice uh, to President Trump previously, to President Biden or any other president. I always provide that best military advice to the Secretary of Defense, whomever is the Secretary of Defense, and I do that for the National Security Council as well. And and I will speak also for this one time on the part on behalf of the Joint Chiefs. The same applies to them. We always adhered to providing best professional military advice, bar none. It was candid, honest in every single occasion. We did that all the time, every time. The other thing that I think is uh, important to note here is that I, the other members of the Joint Chiefs, and all of us in uniform, Uh, We take an oath, an oath to a document, uh, an oath to the Constitution of the United States, and not one time do we violate that. Uh, The entire time, from time of commissioning to today, I can say with certainty that every one of us maintained our oath of allegiance to that document, the Constitution, everything uh, that's contained within it. And we also maintain the tradition of civilian control of the military. We did that without fail. And we also maintained the tradition of an apolitical military. We did that then, we do that now, and we will do that forever. All the time, Bob. I'd just like to add a comment to that, Bob. I, uh, I've known the chairman for a long time. Uh, we've fought together. Um, we've served a couple of times in the, in the same unit, so I, I'm not guessing at his character. He doesn't have a political bone in his body. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I clearly have uh, tremendous faith and confidence in the chairman. What I want to make sure we do is main, uh, maintain our focus on, uh, on the threats ahead, maintain our focus on our pacing challenge with China uh, and, uh, and all the things that we're trying to do to make sure that this force is ready to meet the challenges of the future. And that was Lloyd Austin. He's the Secretary of Defense. Before him, General Mark Milley, who is the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. An excerpt from the book, I Alone Can Fix It, by Washington Post reporters Carol Leonig and Philip Rucker, said Milley was so concerned Trump might try and stay in power through a coup in the last days of his presidency that he discussed it with his deputies. The authors wrote that Milley saw Trump as, quote, the classic authoritarian leader with nothing to lose and told his staff that he believed Trump was stoking unrest, possibly in hopes of an excuse to invoke the Insurrection Act and call out the military. Following the revelation, Fox News host Tucker Carlson called for Milley to be fired and Trump said he should be court-martialed if the statements were true. And speaking to the press yesterday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell encouraged everyone to get vaccinated for COVID-19, saying it can prevent severe illness and hospitalization. Referring to those who oppose the coronavirus vaccine, the Kentucky Republican said people should ignore all of these other voices that are giving demonstrably bad advice. The way to defeat getting back into the position we were last year is to get vaccinated. This is not complicated. 
97% of the people who are in the hospital now for COVID are unvaccinated. So if there's anybody out there willing to listen, get vaccinated. Leader McConnell, on that note, there are the, the Republican governor of Utah said this weekend that conservative talking heads are, quote, literally killing their supporters. Um, would you speak out against people who are actually speaking out against well, the vaccine? I don't know how I could be any more clear than I have been. I've been saying the same thing about vaccinations all along the way. Others can say whatever they choose to say. But this is something I think I'm a good example of, something I know the answer to. It is not at all unclear that the way to avoid getting back in the hospital is to get vaccinated. I want to encourage everybody to do that and to ignore all of these other voices that are giving demonstrably bad advice. That was Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. Meanwhile, in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio and Health Commissioner David Chokshi had bad news for some New Yorkers. Starting August 2nd, the city will require workers at public hospitals to either get vaccinated for COVID-19 or get tested for the virus on a weekly basis. August 2nd, all of our health and hospitals staff, all of our clinical workers for Department of Health It's very clear, and the health commissioner will explain the order he is issuing to put this into effect. Every single one of those employees has a choice. Get vaccinated, the better choice, or get tested weekly. And at any point, you could decide, hey, I'm ready to get vaccinated, then you don't need to get tested weekly anymore. This is about keeping people safe and stopping the Delta variant. This process entails showing proof of vaccination or a negative test each week. So beginning August 2nd, proof of vaccination or a negative test will be requested from all of our clinic-based staff. That means nurses, doctors, social workers, custodians, and registrars. The simple fact is if you're vaccinated, virtually every activity is safer. Because of the Delta variant, increasingly the choice is between infection or vaccination. And that can mean the difference between life and death. This is the first step in fighting back. Everyone can do this now and everyone should do this now to save lives. And as Mayor de Blasio, the decision comes as the Delta variant continues to spread through the city, pushing up hospitalization and infection rates. The city's key virus metrics, number of newly admitted patients with suspected COVID-19, the number of new cases and the test positivity rate are all on the rise. About 60 percent of New York City health and hospitals workers are vaccinated. Dr. Mitchell Katz, the system's chief executive, said at the news conference, despite being first in line for the vaccine, just under 54 percent of all city residents are fully vaccinated. And the COVID-19 pandemic is slamming Cuba like never before, even as the country races to roll out its homegrown vaccines, the only locally developed shots being widely used in Latin America. The island had seen far fewer infections than most other Latin American nations over the first year or so of the disease, imposing strict quarantines, isolating the infected and shutting down its tourism industry despite devastating economic consequences. But new cases have been soaring in recent weeks, with an average of about 6,000 a day being reported in the country of 11 million people. 
The first three weeks of July have accounted for about 100,000 of the nearly 300,000 infections recorded altogether in Cuba since the first case arrived some 16 months ago. Cuba's National Director of Epidemiology, Francisco Duran, said today that 717 people have died so far this month in Cuba, a heavy share of the 2019 who have died in all. But the troubles facing the island nation haven't prevented the Biden administration from doubling down on the embargo against Cuba, despite the two-year hiatus under Biden's former boss, President Obama, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, speaking yesterday. We are actively pursuing measures that both the Cuban people, that support both the Cuban people and hold the Cuban regime accountable. And that has been the prism through which the president has made his decision. So that includes working closely with the private sector and Congress to identify viable options to make the internet more accessible to the Cuban people. We're looking at options. There are a lot of ideas out there. We are also looking to leverage international organization partners to increase humanitarian assistance flows to Cuba and work with our international partners to both voice uh, concern and put public pressure on, but also work with international organizations. The Treasury Department, via the Office of Foreign Assets Control, will continue to explore designated Cuban officials responsible for violence, repression, and human rights violation against peaceful protesters in Cuba. And we will form a remittance working group to identify the most effective way to get remittances directly into the hands of the Cuban people. On the last piece, I would note that what the president said last week stands, which is that there has been long Longstanding concern about if you return remittances, if you return to a, a place where remittances are allowed, that that money or funding does not get into the hands of the regime or allow them to pad their pockets. That's certainly something that we're mindful of when we're looking at that will be a point of discussion in these working groups. And that was Jen Psaki, a Cuban currently living in Miami, is Carlos Garrido. He says the U.S. hates Cuba because it provides an alternative to American domination of the Western Hemisphere. It's honestly been disappointing, as it usually is the case with American foreign policy. The U.S. is directly responsible, along with the pandemic, for the condition of Cuba. Uh, Cuba, from the beginning of the pandemic, has been sending doctors abroad all over the place. There's right now a movement to get the Henry Reeve Brigade, Nobel Peace Prize. And they've been doing this all while unable to get the necessary things to, to treat their population because of the embargo and the blockade. At the moment, I think Cuba has five vaccine candidates, two of them that were approved, and they haven't been able to really take off with their vaccination program because they can't get a hold of syringes because of the blockade. At the beginning of the pandemic, they weren't able to do certain things because they weren't able to get ventilators because the U.S. was blocking business that Cuba was trying to do with one of the Scandinavian countries. Then we have the audacity to then point at Cuba and say, look, these unrests are happening because of the government, because Cuba's a dictatorship, when that's just untrue. There was just a recent study that came out about how the U.S. State Department through USAID was funding hip-hop artists in Cuba. Smart tact, but it's very devious stuff. We know that the U.S. has been funding an opposition in Cuba. We know that the material conditions are a mixture of the pandemic, which has hit every country hard, with the exception of perhaps China and the blockade. And then we have the audacity to point out those two things and say, well, the Cubans are protesting their government. There was a vote for the new constitution in 2019. More than 90% of the voting population came out to vote, which is something we don't see in presidential elections here in the U.S. Cuba is a democratic ideal in comparison to the U.S. right now. What's the big problem? I mean, the Americans act like they are vindictive about something, about some dictator who got overthrown in the 1950s and nobody remembers his name. I mean, why? Quite simply, because what Cuba represents is 
an experiment of an alternative world that came about 90 miles away from the largest empire in human history. So they represent a world in which people are prioritized over profit. What is SOS Cuba and what are these bots? SOS Cuba is a Twitter campaign run by the opposition. So they would share videos with the protests in Cuba, which many of them were released in Miami and Tampa. But what they ended up finding, there was a bot campaign tied to the hashtag so that the hashtag started trending because there was a series of bots that were retweeting stuff at like five retweets a second, which is just physically impossible. There was people protesting. It was a larger number than usual, but it wasn't as big as they made it seem through social media and through mainstream media. Has the Cuban government cut off the Internet access to Cuban people? That's something you have to take with a grain of salt. I'm not saying it's false automatically. It kind of makes sense that if a foreign country is trying to manipulate your population to revolt against the government, what would we do here? What sort of scandal did we make? Somebody who starts a fight and then uh, claims they have a broken finger from punching you in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's Carlos Garita, a Cuban-American graduate student from Miami. And a bipartisan coalition of state attorneys general, including New York State AG Letitia James, announced today a $26 billion national settlement with drug maker Johnson & Johnson and three companies that distributed opioid painkillers even as addiction and overdose deaths skyrocketed. But not everyone is happy with the settlement. Adam Del Marcel is an art professor at Pennsylvania College of Art. He had a close relative die from an opioid overdose. He says for most family members, the settlement is a sham. Ask any family that's lost somebody to an overdose or anyone who has family members or people they love currently struggling, they're going to tell you that these settlements mean absolutely nothing. This is uh, another great example of what happens in America too often. Um, we think if we can pay enough, we can uh, do whatever we like. These companies are responsible for 500,000 people dead. No matter how much money they try to throw at this, it's never going to be enough. What we're looking for is real justice here and real accountability, and that means people being sentenced to jail for their actions. So the settlements don't go nearly far enough. Anytime big settlements come down like this also, I think all of us are very skeptical as to where the money is going to end up going, no matter what the amount is. Letitia James said this is the best that they can expect. Maybe it's the best that a government official can expect but it's not the best that families expect. And this is not nearly over. So families like the Sackler family or Johnson & Johnson or all these others that think they're going to be able to pay this amount and this is going to somehow make this go away, they're really going to be in for a surprise because families like mine and all the families that I work with across the country, once they can never have. We're never going to get the people that we lost back. And the idea that dollar amount is somehow going to start the healing process for us is just never going to happen. Is there a healing process and what would it take? One major thing that could happen is to actually see someone have to spend time behind bars for their actions. There were moves made that were purposely done to be able to subjugate an entire generation of people into having to take the medication that these people were creating. Those conversations were had. Sackler family early on did early market research to find the most susceptible areas in the country, people that were already lower income, more susceptible to pain, doctors that were over, already overprescribing. These conversations were had. That the premeditated action that they spent millions and millions of dollars to figure out, they injected their product into those areas and it spread like wildfire. 
So the, the only way that I would ever find any type of satisfaction would be to see one of these individuals behind bars. They could have just legalized marijuana and handed it out to people would have been a lot better. They're legalizing it because it's now a marketable product they're going to make trillions of dollars off of. There's a difference between that and saying decriminalizing, meaning I can go out and buy a bag of weed. Bridge the gap to opiates. So what Oregon's doing and saying that's what the country should do. I'm very skeptical. The main reason why states are legalizing is, is revenue generated. In Pennsylvania, where I'm at, that's the entire reason why they're moving towards that. It has nothing to do with helping folks that you know might have opioid addiction. It has nothing to do with mental health or keeping people um, in a better state of mind. It has to do with making as much money as we possibly can. Adam Del Marcel is an art professor at Pennsylvania College of Art. He had a close relative die from an opioid overdose. And it's a deal that is embraced by most states. The three drug distributors will spend spread their $21 billion payments over 18 years. Johnson & Johnson will contribute $5 billion over a nine-year span. In a statement, Johnson & Johnson said the settlement will directly support state and local efforts to make meaningful progress in addressing the opioid crisis. However, as part of the agreement, J&J agreed to no longer manufacture opioid medications. The company voluntarily halted sales of prescription opioids last year. And finally, the rainbow flag has flown proudly since 1997 at Harvey Milk Plaza in San Francisco in the iconic neighborhood known as the Castro. But some community people want to replace the iconic rainbow flag with a new symbol that has friends and supporters of Gilbert Baker, the originator of the rainbow flag as a symbol of sexual liberation, petitioning to stop the change. Charlie Beal is the founder of the Gilbert Baker Foundation. This cultural district got it in their head that the way to do that was to take down Gilbert's flag and put up the progress flag, which is a new flag designed by my friend Dan Quasar, which has a chevron with the trans colors and the colors from... What colors are those? The more colors flag has the black and the brown stripe. And the trans stripes are the pink, blue, and white. So he created a chevron design and laid it over the rainbow flag to force the... LGBTQ community to look at their own feelings about racism and transphobia. It is somewhat divisive in its philosophy. What's uh, divisive? That the bi community is up in arms because they don't see the bisexual flag colors on it. What colors are those? Those are a darker blue and pink overlapping. I fear to see this unified movement become sort of like different flags. Monica Helms created the trans flag. She's a friend of mine. She's on the board of the Gilbert Baker Foundation. She likes to say that these other flags are like state flags and that the rainbow flag is like the American flag. What's Gilbert Baker's role in all of this? As Gilbert liked to say, I didn't invent the rainbow flag. I just put it to work. Gilbert designed the LGBTQ plus rainbow flag. He branded it as a flag of our community. It is now one of the most eight recognizable icons in the world, along with the American flag. Its place is pretty much set in history, but there are some people that they're so impressed with how far they've evolved and how progressive they are that they want to use what's called the progress flag and say, we want to take down Gilbert's flag and put up the progress flag. And part of the way they're doing this, Paul, and this is really offensive, is they're trying to rebrand the rainbow flag as for old white men old white gay men. It's not true. The rainbow flag, since Gilbert gave it away freely and never charged money for it and didn't try to copyright, people have used it for what they want. People complain about it being used by corporations or bar owners who don't like to let people of color in their bar. 
as the progress flags were popular, they're going to find the same thing. Corporations are already using the progress flag to try to sell products. Overreach by woke culture? Absolutely. And I tell you, you know how you know, Paul, because the first thing they do when you argue with them, they say, you need to evolve. And I got to tell you, as soon as I hear that buzzword, I know I'm dealing with somebody with a very closed mind. Why do they leave the bi community out? The problem is with these, all these other flags is they literally assign identity aspects to each of the stripes. This is the boy stripe, the girl stripe, asexual stripe. Gilbert, on the other hand, when he created the rainbow flag, he chose human elements for his stripes. The stripes represent sex, love, healing, sunshine, nature, spirit, serenity, and magic. Those elements that he likes to say that are in all of us. He was a genius in doing this, and that is why his symbol is such a worldwide phenomenon. What is it that people can do and should do? They should sign our petition. It's very simple. We want to show that there is broad support for this, and they should write letters to Supervisor Mandelman's office saying, please landmark the flag. The idea of a large international symbol isn't about whether I see myself in this flag. They're meant to unite trans people and gay men, to unite the whole group. You need that rainbow flag because it's the only symbol that unites us all. Charlie Beale is the founder of the Gilbert Baker Foundation. Gilbert Baker died in 2017, but his vision of a permanent monument became a reality on November 8, 1997, the 20th anniversary of Harvey Milk's election. He was the first gay person, openly gay person elected to a position in American history. A magnificent 30 by 20 foot rainbow flag was raised on a 70 foot flagpole as a beacon of hope. A commemorative bronze plaque at its base honors Baker. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>